Learning Pod, a Gannett-powered podcast on everything education, featuring Sheridan Hendricks, Alyssa Widman-Niece, and Megan Henry from the Columbus Dispatch. Today on the Learning Pod, we will be giving you an update on what Ohio lawmakers decided on for the state's new education budget. I'm Sheridan Hendricks, higher education reporter here at the Columbus Dispatch. And with me are Alyssa Widman-Niece, who covers K-12 education at the Dispatch, and special guest Anna Staver, a state house politics reporter for Gannett's Ohio Network. It's July, which means Ohio lawmakers have officially decided how the state will fund educating Ohio students for the next few years. Anna, the last time we got together and we're talking about the budget, I guess just to start, could you tell us a little bit about, remind us what these two plans were and can you tell us what Ohio lawmakers decided will be the new state's education budget? Sure. So there was a House plan and a Senate plan. And the very quick story is they went with the House plan. But the more in-depth story is that there were two different ideas for figuring out what it costs to educate kids in Ohio. One was a statewide base cost, and that means like average kid, average school. And one was a local base cost. And they went with the local version. And that's a really big deal because we've never done it that way. And so what that means is that every school is going to get a different amount from the state. Now, they were always getting different amounts, but it was based on like one statewide formula. But so what they're going to do is they're going to take staff salary, student teacher ratios, insurance costs and like local district spending data. And they're going to calculate that all out into what the district should get. And it actually turns out that it's going to be significantly more than what they used to get. It's going to be a fairly substantial pay bump for most districts. So that's the the basic of what they did. But the really important caveat is that this new plan is supposed to take six years to fully phase in. So only a part of it goes in in terms of like the total amount of money that a district will get is supposed to happen over six years. And it's supposed to be like $2 billion over six years is the total increase in state education costs. But um, they sort of stacked it in the house plan to um, be bigger jumps in the later years, if that makes sense. So like a little increase next year, a little bit, and then they get bigger and bigger. But the budget is only for two years. And the lawmakers, I guess the compromise was they were pretty explicit that there's no guarantee that this formula will last longer than two years. (laughs) They were like, yeah, we'll do the first years and then we'll decide whether we like this idea. I have no idea how that's going to work because a lot of the extra costs weren't supposed to come in until the later years. And so they're doing like the small parts of the implementation. So there's that like sort of larger question of what do we do when we get out of this next two year budget cycle? But I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I I sort of feel like um, I don't know if Alyssa feels the same way, but I was like, I thought we were done. But we're not done because <laughs> they're like, we're going to keep talking about it. Are um, we ever really done with school funding talks? I mean, probably is, is that a thing. <laughs> I don't know. And then there were so it's not fully funded in that regard, because technically there's no promise to do this past two years. But there's never really a promise because we have elections and the General Assembly changes and you can't force like the next set of lawmakers to do what you want anyway. So it's always kind of up in the air with these big long-term ideas. But there was also lots of other changes, like little like squicky things that people should know about. Like now that you need informed consent for sex ed. So we're sort of moving anything beyond abstinence only will be more of an opt-in than an opt-out now. 
And so there's like little changes like that. There were massive changes to the school voucher system, including like siblings are auto-enrolled, foster children living in your home are auto-enrolled. They lifted the caps on ed choice, which means there's no longer a limit on how much the state can pay for these. Um, they moved to funding them directly through the state instead of first giving the money to the schools. So there were like massive changes, no matter whether you go to a public school, a community school, an ed choice, private like scholarship, like sort of like everybody got some fairly substantial changes in the education space. So because these two plans were so different the last time we talked, I'm sure there had to be a lot of compromises that were made to actually see this uh, new funding plan through. So could you talk us through maybe what kind of compromises were made and how we got to this point? So there really wasn't any compromise, <laughs> which is so crazy to me. I guess there was compromise in the sense that um, the Senate got everything that they wanted on vouchers and the House got everything that they wanted on public education. But they didn't actually compromise much on the plans aside from we're not fully funding it. The final version is basically the K-12 formula that the House wanted. So the House won that. And we're not I'm still not quite clear what the Senate got in exchange, although I have theories. So like we talked about last time, you know, it's easy to get really caught up in the numbers and what kind of funding is going to happen here or there and how long this will take. And. But at the end of the day, these are students and school districts that are going to be feeling the effects of this new plan. So for both of you, what do you guys think will be the day-to-day -day impact of this new funding for local school districts, for teachers, for families, for these students? I can talk about that a little bit. Here locally, our colleague Megan Henry, who's on vacation this week and not able to be on the podcast, um, had written a story recapping some of that local impact. You can see that on dispatch.com. Essentially, school leaders feel that this assurance of state funding over the next couple of years will give them some stability that makes them less likely to have to go to taxpayers to ask for additional property taxes through a levy. Some of the key players in that story are the ones that I talked with back in late April, because as Anna said, the plan that went forward was essentially unchanged from um, what I wrote about way back then. The Olentangy School District and the Licking Heights School District in particular are going to see um, a lot of great impact of that. Megan spoke with the Licking County superintendent, and he said that they're planning on hiring 40 teachers over the next couple of years, that they hadn't really been able to keep up with that and all the district growth. They also will be opening a, another school building, um, hopefully in time for the 24-25 school year which sounds crazy far away, but it's really not that far away. And um, because of the plan, they likely won't need to ask the community for another levy. Olentangy, very similar situation, perhaps even worse than Licking Heights. They are one of the fastest growing districts in the state. And again, um, just hadn't been able to keep up with that, mainly because the previous funding plan capped that district and didn't allow them to get any additional state funding to match the growth that they were experiencing. So those caps are out the window now, 
and uh, Olentangy is going to be able to keep up with that, they're going to see a huge boost of 27% increase in funding in the first year and almost 26% in the second year. So I'm sure the school board president, Julie, is doing jumping jacks uh, every day now as a result of that. She's been really outspoken about um, the need for more funding for that district. So overall, I think the impact is really, you know, when you think about the bread and butter of a school district, it's buildings, it's teachers, it's buses, it's curriculum. You know, all of this is going to be making those things um, happen for students and happening with the support of the state rather than the local taxpayers having to foot the entire bill. And you guys couldn't see it, but I was doing a little happy dance in my own chair as a parent of kids in the Olentangy district. I know that's like completely biased, but I'm I am excited because we are almost entirely residential property funded. Um, so and that means that like, you know, we don't have a lot of big businesses or big industry that to offset the costs of these school levies. They're born almost entirely by the residents. And it's a real issue in my neighborhood. There are older families on fixed incomes who are selling and moving out. And it's not because they can't afford their mortgage. It's because they can't afford their ever increasing property taxes. Yeah. And that, um, Olentangy's really been described as like a poster child for the issue with the previous school funding formula. So I don't think it's biased to point that out. I think um, pretty much all of the state was in agreement with you on that one. The happy dance might be a little biased, but (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell. (laughs) But no, they are a good example of what like the real world impact of this formula will mean in terms of like stability and funding. And that's that's the other big thing is that um, the way that the state share of instruction, which is how much the state gives you and how much they think you should be able to raise on your own, everybody was tied to each other. So like if like, and you were all on a list in like ranked in terms of state share of instruction. And so like, if somebody moved up, like you could get more money or you could lose money, even though nothing about your district changed it. And like the schools hated that because it kind of pitted them. Well, it literally pitted them against each other. And so by removing that aspect of it, it allows like things can change in the neighboring district without screwing you over, which like schools are really legit happy about. And I get because they're not going to be ranked anymore in comparison to each other. One thing I was hoping um, maybe Anna could talk a little bit more about was um, the voucher issue. Um Obviously, the Senate got um, what it wanted in terms of the vouchers for students. It's my understanding that it's a fairly small percentage of Ohio's students who are on the vouchers. But I'm wondering like, what you see as the long-term effect of this, just so we can sort of simplify it for the majority of Ohio families who don't have kids on vouchers so they can kind of understand what all this means. So there are some fairly significant changes um, in terms of vouchers. So the first thing that happened was we increased the amount. So they're called Ed Choice Scholarships, and you get a certain amount every year per kid. Uh, they are going up to $5,000 for K through 8 and $7,500 a year for high school. And that that is a fairly substantial bump. It was $6,000 a year for high school previously. But more importantly, they are now pegged to um, the average uh, base cost. And so as the base cost, which is average kid, average school in Ohio, as that like 
rises, these scholarships will auto increase. So we won't be voting again, probably. I mean, who knows? They might, but they won't have to vote on increases in the voucher amounts. They're just going to rise with the overall cost of education. And that's like a fairly substantial change because every time we increase public funding, we're going to increase voucher funding now sort of in perpetuity. Um, the other thing, obviously, with enrollment is auto-enrolling siblings, redefining what siblings mean. So the voucher program has grown. I'm really interested in the voucher data. And um, if you look at the number of kindergartners, we have more than double the number of kindergartners taking vouchers than we do high school seniors. And so you can just see in these numbers as they rise, because I asked for it broken down by like age and race and ethnicity and grade level, that like we are wildly like our voucher program is growing and you can see it in just a steady rise in the reverse order of grades. Every grade gets a little bigger. So the program overall is getting bigger and more expensive and more wide widespread. Um, one of the things they've been doing is, and I won't ramble, I could talk forever about vouchers, but uh, they also have been very slowly increasing eligibility in terms of income. So there's two different kinds of voucher. There's the you live in what we call a failing school, which is a whole other conversation, or you meet a certain income guideline. And now I think it's 300% of federal poverty. The Senate president's been very clear that he wants to go up to 400%, which I think is close to 100K for a family of four, which would make like 70% of Ohio families eligible for vouchers, which is also wild. So there's like they're really working to increase the availability of these vouchers and to expand the program. And there is a larger conversation, I think, to be had about overall cost, because now it's its own item. Right. And like how much money are we spending and at what point might we say like, you know, 200 million, 300 million, half a billion? Like at what point do we say like we're spending too much money on private education? You know, I think that often when I talk with school leaders, they seem pretty excited about this plan, um, which is now reality. Um, they do seem to have some reservations about the changes to vouchers, but overall, um, it seems like folks on both sides are characterizing this as a win-win. Um, I just wanted to make sure that um, I'm understanding that correctly as something that you're seeing too as you talk with folks about it. Yeah, everyone I've talked to is pretty happy about it. Um, the big unknown is what they call categoricals, um, and that will be the next fight probably. So, yay. Um, those are what it costs to educate anyone who isn't average or normal or whatever we define normal as in like terms of statistics. So like economically disadvantaged students, uh, gifted students, English as a second language learner, like special needs students, they all are what we call categoricals. So added costs on top of educating an average kid in an average school. Um, and we have no idea what those costs. We literally, we, we don't know, we kind of guess. We think we're probably very wrong. And so the plan for the next few years is to actually try to figure that out. So I think everybody's really excited that they have a formula and a structure, but there's still a lot of unknowns in terms of cost, if that makes sense. It does. Like we said in the beginning, the, the talk of school funding in Ohio is it's never really done. <laughs> it's job security. <laughs> exactly. To learn more about Ohio's education budget, you can follow Anna, Megan, and Alyssa's coverage on Dispatch.com. And if you'd like to support more local journalism like this, please consider subscribing to the Columbus Dispatch. Visit Dispatch.com slash subscribe now to learn more. Thanks for listening.